Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey guys, welcome to The Bustle Huddle. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and today's episode is the first of a monthly series dedicated entirely to books. And I know a lot of you are probably committing to reading more in 2019, so you're definitely going to want to catch these episodes. You'll learn what books Bustle editors can't put down, and you'll also get to hear some really fascinating conversations with authors, like this episode's interview with Danny Shapiro. First, let's welcome our very own senior books editor, Christina Ariola. Hi, Jada. Thank you so much for having me. So I know several people have already asked you this, but just how many books did you read in 2018? So I keep a log of all the books that I read in a year just on my phone. Um, And when I tallied them up at the end of the year, I had read 113 books, which was, I think, a personal high for me. Wow. So how, how long does it take you to finish one book typically? You know, it depends on the book. Generally, it takes me about two or three days. Um, at the end of last year, I did judge a literary award for Pen America, and so that kind of pushed me into reading Overdrive. <laughs> I was reading a book a day. I remember that. Um, but generally, once every two or three days, I'm finishing a book. Yeah, that's pretty quick. For me, it's usually one a week if I can like actually get a seat on the subway and read for an hour and then read at night. Um, but I've never logged my books before, so I have no idea other than like what I remember to put on my Goodreads. So I might have to like actually start logging because I am curious to see how many I do. Probably maybe 40. I would say maybe a good 40 a year if I'm, if I'm guesstimating. Yeah, I definitely think that Goodreads can be a little bit intimidating because, you know, it requires so much data. You have to put it when you started it, when you mm-hmm. ended it. Um, do you write a review? Do you not write a review? It's definitely a lot of pressure. So while I love Goodreads, it really just keeps it simple for me to keep a list going in my notes. And it's easy just to go back and tally at the end of the year and see, you know, what I read to, you know, a lot of times I'll forget that I read a particular book and seeing it on that list will sort of reignite my feelings for it. Um, so I find it to be really helpful. I think I'm definitely going to take that on. I mean, it's easy right now because it's January, and I read the first January Bustle Book Club book, The Dinner List, so I know exactly where I'm starting. So do you have a tip for listeners who want to read more, but they might not have a ton of time to devote to it? Yeah, definitely. I think that if you are strapped for time, your two best options are going to be either audiobooks, which are such a fantastic way to experience a story in a totally different way, especially if, you know, it's something like true crime or thriller and you're sort of getting like that ambiance, that sound. It's almost like you're in a horror movie, but you're listening to an audiobook. You know, just try one book. We have tons of recommendations on bustle.com and you might find that you really enjoy listening to books as you cook or as you clean or, you know, as you kind of just unwind at the end of the night when you're maybe feeling just a little bit too tired. Mm -hmm. you know, to get your eyes on that page. 
Another thing I would recommend is short story and essay collections. Mm. Um, it's easy enough to just read one story or one essay every couple of days, and that'll really get your mind moving and kind of get you back into the practice of reading without a lot of the pressure. There's been tons of times that I've picked up an essay collection and maybe read four or five of the essays and not actually finished the book, mm. um, and that's totally okay. Like, I loved those essays. I enjoyed reading them. And, you know, that counts, too. For sure. I love the idea of listening to an audiobook, especially I've been hearing a lot of great things about memoirs that are narrated by their subject. So a lot of people loved listening to Michelle Obama tell her story. So that definitely sounds like something doable and even enjoyable. Like, I would love for her to read to me. (laughs) So this sounds like a good place to plug Bustle's Book Club. Yeah, definitely. So we just launched the Bustle Book Club. Every month we ask an author to recommend a book for the book club. So it's not actually me picking them. It is an author that we have chosen. Um, And in January, we actually had Jenny Hahn, the author of To All the Boys I Loved Before, Mm -hmm. choose the book. And she selected The Dinner List by Rebecca Searle, which is this really lovely story that plays on this question that we have all asked or answered at one point in our life, which is, if you could choose any five people, dead or alive, to have dinner with, who would you choose? And so the protagonist, Sabrina, chooses five people uh, when she's 19 years old. And 11 years later, on her 30th birthday, she ends up actually having dinner with those five people. Um, And, you know, one of them is like Audrey Hepburn. Mm -hmm. One is her college professor. One is her ex-boyfriend. One is her best friend. And one is her estranged dad. And so the novel kind of goes back and forth between this dinner and scenes from, you know, her life in the past, her experiences with these people. Um, And it's just this very touching story about what makes a life, um, you know, the nuances of the relationships that we share with our romantic partners, but also our friends and our parents and our mentors. And it really is a lovely story that I think people are going to be able to really dig into with their friends. And if you prefer to enjoy books alone, you don't want to put on pants and go outside. I get it. It's cold. (laughs) We actually have a Goodreads discussion board as well where you can feel free to drop in questions, to talk to people. And you can find all of that on bustle.com backslash bustle book club. Yes, I adored this book and it really made me think about, I feel like you always have that question where it's like, who, living or dead, would you want to have dinner with? And you can come up with all kinds of different scenarios. But I never really thought about how they would all interact at dinner with each other, like especially like with her her ex-boyfriend and her best friend, kind of. You could tell that there was a lot of stuff going on there. I don't want to spoil, but that might not have happened if the two of them weren't at the table. Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably would react badly if I were at dinner with some of my friend's ex-boyfriends. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, definitely. It's really interesting to see the way that these five people and Sabrina interact with each other. And it really just makes for some really, really amazing talking points. And I was so pleased that Jenny Han chose this book. Um, But if this doesn't sound like your thing, you're in luck because February is going to be very different. I can't announce the title quite yet. But I will say that the author who selected it is Girl on the Train author Paula Hawkins. And that will be revealed in the first week of February. I cannot wait. As someone who absolutely loved The Dinner List, I am so tuned into Bustle's Book Club and I cannot wait to get my hands on the next book. 
We were lucky enough to talk to Danny Shapiro about her most recent book, Inheritance. But before we play that conversation, if you still need some inspiration on what to read next, here's what some of the Bustle staff is reading this month. Hi, I'm Celia Darrow, and I'm the senior news editor at Bustle. Right now, I'm reading a book called Dreamland, which is a nonfiction book about the opioid crisis in America and just all the different aspects that kind of kickstarted it from the pharmaceutical companies to heroin distributors and everything like that. And it's just a really fascinating look into this crisis that is affecting America right now. Hi, I'm Hannah Caldwell. I am the social editor here at Bustle, and I am recommending the book Dumplin' by Julie Murphy, which is the same book that the Netflix movie is based off of. But this book is so much better than the movie. I know that's cliche, but for real, if you thought the movie was good but not great, the book is seriously great. I finished it a few days ago. Cannot stop thinking about it. Can't stop talking about it. It's such an amazing story. I'm Hannah Orenstein, the dating editor at Elite Daily, and this month I'm really loving The Book of Essie by Megan McLean Ware. It's such an insightful, eye-opening account of an evangelical family and a really great peek into reality TV, and I could not put it down. My name is Janelle Foy, and I'm actually about to start my cousin Naya Chantel's book. She is an author of urban fiction, and she just recently completed A Rose That Grew From Concrete. Um, And I just want to be super supportive, and I'm super excited to get started. I'm Sam Rulo. I am a senior manager of editorial operations for Bustle Digital Group, and I'm currently reading the book Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter. I started it because one of my favorite books that I read last year was The Good Daughter. This one is also great. My only concern is it's real dark. Like, The Good Daughter by Karen Slaughter is dark, but this is like a whole nother level of dark. But um, she just is really good at writing women, especially. Both books from that have are about sisters who have like a complicated relationship, and it all reads really true. Um, and then it's also a murder book, and she actually is able to write twists that I don't see coming, which is very rare for me, so I always appreciate it. And yeah, def- I just, you know, was looking for something good and murdery, and I think Karen Slaughter is my new go-to for that. All right, Jada, this question is going to sound kind of weird, but have you ever taken a DNA test before? So as someone who is like obsessed with finding your roots and all of the shows on DNA testing, this is totally great for me. Um, I have taken an ancestry test and I actually found out some pretty cool stuff. I found out that I have DNA across every continent. So yay, have see babies, do your DNA test. You might have some cool facts in there. Um, yeah, I learned some, and I also learned that I'm like 12% Scandinavian, which is like, who would have thought that? So have you taken one? No, so I haven't taken one, and I discussed this a little bit in the interview with Danny Shapiro, but basically, I'm just nervous about it. I don't know what I'm going to find, and you know, I'm nervous about the privacy implications, but also I'm just nervous about the personal implications, and a lot of the reason that I'm nervous about it is because I read Danny's book, Inheritance, (laughs) um, which is about the fact that she discovered after taking a DNA test that her father was not her biological father. Um, And it's a memoir of her experience, A, discovering that, and then B, finding her biological father, and then C, kind of coping with what this information means about her identity as a Jewish woman, about her identity as you know, this woman who has grown up her entire life thinking that she is the biological daughter of a man who is unfortunately passed away now. 
Um, And so there was just so many things that she had to grapple with. Um, And, you know, we talk about how in many ways she spent her life searching for whatever is at the heart of her that she was missing. And in a lot of ways, she found it via this very shocking discovery. And so this is a really interesting interview about DNA testing, about family, about identity. And it's a really, really beautiful book that I think is going to spark a lot of discussions um, about a lot of different topics. And I highly recommend it. This sounds so complex and just so fascinating. Let's just head right into this interview. So what initially inspired you to do the DNA test? Was it your husband? It was my husband saying, you know, he, he was doing it and in, in a sort of recreational way. And he asked me if I wanted to do it, too. And I so easily could have said no. But instead, I said yes. And as has been remarked upon, I feel like, by every reviewer, um, it does seem sort of interesting that this happened to you, a memoirist. Immediately when this happened, did you know that this was something that you were going to write about? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it was literally the story of my life. And in, in a way, it's what every other book of mine has led to. I mean, one of the extraordinary things to me was how the clues to what I must have really deeply known but never have been able to articulate to myself, they were scattered through all of my books. This, this sense of knowing, and also all of my fiction has centered around family secrets. Why? You know, I mean, I say to my writing students sometimes that theme is just a fancy literary word for obsession. You know, we don't choose what obsesses us, and what obsesses us becomes our themes. And my themes very much centered around around secrets. I didn't know I was the secret. And also, you know, one reviewer wrote, like just the other day I read this, Danny Shapiro is both the worst person and the best person to have this happen to her. And I loved that because... Yeah, I read that interview, or that review, and yeah, it was, that just was tr- It was just true. And yeah. But also, right when when I made this discovery, the language that I used around it was, you know, that this happened to me. But it actually didn't happen to me. It always was me. I discovered it, but it was always there. And so in that sense, it really is the story of my life that I didn't know. And you've written 10 books. This is your 10th book. And all of them have been published after your father died. But it does seem like, of course, this one very explicitly deals with him and his secrets. You know, in in all of my memoirs, except for one, um, except for my most recent memoir, Hourglass, which really is about marriage, my marriage, um, all of my memoirs were in some way or another an attempt to understand my dad. And I would have said this before this discovery. They were an attempt to piece him together, to honor him, to make sense of why he was so sad, why he seemed distant and increasingly distant over the years. And he died when I was 23. Um, So this is all a long time ago. But I was always trying to understand him. And so inheritance... There is a strange feeling sometimes, like I had a piece published in Time magazine a couple weeks ago about my discovery, and accompanying it was a photograph of me and my dad on the beach when I'm a little kid. And when I saw it in the magazine, I thought, wow. You know, when my mother took that picture, my parents were keeping a secret that they were going to take to the grave with them, and now it's in Time magazine. And, I mean, I wouldn't have written this book if my father was still living. Yet at the same time, I feel that somehow being left with this story and being left with this mystery and being the person who's left to live with it and left to uncover it and to be a writer 
with that story, it felt to me almost instantly that I knew that I would have to write about it. I felt like I was I was born to write it. So there wasn't really any ambivalence about that. Now that the book is out, I do have moments of feeling a little bit like, wow, this was, my, my parents did really keep this secret for their whole lives. And now the whole world is going to know about the secret that they tried so hard to keep to the point where I think they were even keeping it from themselves to some degree. Yeah, you write about that, about how your mom almost seemed to have repressed it entirely or disassociated from the secret. I really believe, I'll never know, I'll never know for sure, but I believe that my mother walked around believing that I was my father's daughter. And when my son was born, in the same hospital, it should be said, where I was born, so when my mother came to see me the day he was born, she's walking into the place where she gave birth to me, um, she looked at him and she said, he looks just like a Shapiro. He has the Shapiro forehead. He has the Shapiro chin. I believe she meant it. Even though my parents absolutely would have, from all the research that I've done, they would have known that donor sperm was used in my conception. They would have known that. It was, it was transparently done, even back in those days. But a lot went into, after it was transparent, after couples signed on the dotted line, after blood type was matched, after a conversation was had, the institutes dealing um, in in that kind of reproductive technology would then tell the couple, go home, have sex, come in, do the procedure, go home and have sex again. They would mix the the donor sperm with the father's sperm that didn't that, that wasn't fertile, and they did everything possible to make the couple hold out hope that it was possible that the father was the biological father of the child. I was told by somebody who underwent that procedure at that institute. This isn't in the book. It happened after I'd finished the book. Um, so a woman in her 80s I had this conversation with, she told me that the head of the institute actually told her that if a man was completely sterile, he would never tell him. So that they, he would always want there to be hope that there was that biological connection. And part of that was, I think this is much less true today, but there was so much shame and so much trauma associated with infertility, and especially male infertility. I mean, it was never the it was never the dude. It was always, always the woman if there was a problem with a couple having a child. And in fact, of course, we now understand it's it's often male infertility, but it was considered something that was just shameful and nobody wanted to talk about it. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Yeah, and in the book, when you discover that... You initially discover it because you find out that your half-sister is actually not related to you at all. 
um, and you sort of end up going on this deep dive into your history. Was that something that you ever second guessed or were you immediately like, I need to figure out what has happened here? Oh, I second, I mean, I second guessed it. I didn't believe it for weeks. I mean, first, the first clue was when my results came back, they showed me to be 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish, and the rest was French, English, Irish, German, Swedish. It had nothing to do with my understanding of what made me up genetically. And I just thought, well, that's a mistake. I mean, I was certain that I knew where I came from. A little while later, a first cousin appeared on my page who was a stranger to me. And that got my attention a little bit more, and it really got my husband's attention. His background is as, is as an investigative journalist, and he just, he also could afford to think what he was thinking. I couldn't afford to think, what does this mean? What, what does this really mean? But so he suggested to me that I compare my DNA results with my much older half-sisters. And she had done hers years ago for to just discover anything hereditary and didn't have any surprising results. And but so there is something called GEDmatch where you can actually compare two DNA files. And it took I write in the book a fraction of a second to see those results. And those results showed we were not related at all. And that was the moment that I knew because I knew that meant well certainly it meant that either our father wasn't my father or or our father wasn't her father, I knew it meant that he, he wasn't my father. I, it was the story of my life that I didn't look like him and that I didn't quote-unquote look Jewish. She looked a lot like him and sounded like him and walked like him and talked like him. And, but still, I made my husband go downstairs and call the testing company. I'm sure they're getting calls like this every single day, many, many calls like this. And he was told that never in the history of the company had such a mistake ever been made. They, they don't make mistakes. And, you know, the DNA doesn't lie. And so that was the beginning of, and it's the nature of shock, too, I think, to keep on thinking, well, this can't be, this can't be. Surely there's another explanation. But there wasn't. And so I pretty much immersed myself in a really deep dive into who's my biological father and also into what did my parents know in all of the years of my childhood were they raising me knowing consciously that I wasn't my father's biological child if so did it matter I, there were so many questions I had and it involved both of my parents are gone so it involved a kind of reordering and rethinking of my whole history and this goes back to you know Danny Shapiro is the worst person for this to happen to because I've spent my life trying to piece it together um, but also the best person for it to happen to because I could piece it together. In many ways, it seems like, at least if this happened to me, I feel like it would almost be cathartic to be able to finally have an answer that existed outside of my own thinking. You were yeah. actually kind of able to, you know, track down where the in vitro fertilization had happened, to, you know, discover which doctor had done it, to talk to people who had had it done, to find your biological father. Yeah, it was, it was strangely exhilarating. Um, all the while I was in a state of shock in those initial weeks, and it all, the discoveries happened very quickly. Um, I had just enough clues to be able to piece it together, which is something I will forever be grateful for. I had a long-ago conversation with my mother where she had given me a clue. She definitely did not mean to, but she did give me a clue, and I never forgot it because I also really think that in some way, when there's something important that's being said or that we overhear that really, even though we don't know what's important about it, 
we file it away. It's like our brains become little recording devices. And so I had access to that long ago conversation. And I'm not, even though I'm this kind of prolific memoirist, I don't have a great memory. I, I, can't, I can't tell you uh, what I had for breakfast last week or you know, recount a conversation, except for the really important ones. And that was a really important one. So I had a clue. And she had used the word institute, uh, not clinic, not hospital, able to zero in on the place, able to zero in on, you know, my husband and I both had this hypothesis that it might have been a medical student because that's often who did donate sperm back in those days and still. So I was able to unravel that part of the mystery really quickly. Um, it didn't feel liberating then. I mean, this is now nearly three years into this discovery and this journey. It absolutely feels liberating now because so much was inexplicable to me, especially my own face. I mean, the face staring back at me in the mirror didn't make any sense. And that's a very weird thing to feel and to always know. Um, I mean, it really was, and it's a big part of the book, it was the story of my life that every day I was told, you don't look Jewish. You can't possibly be Jewish. Some version of that. And it's so un-PC, but people do it. And it was, you know, Jewish people said it to me, non-Jewish people said it to me, but everybody said it to me constantly. And they were really saying, you're other than what you think you are. And I was internalizing that, but not understanding it. And so there is a lot of liberation in that. I mean, even in terms of aspects of my temperament. For example, I am constitutionally very strong. And I came from two parents who weren't. And I never understood why that was, why there, was, there were certain qualities in me that just seemed like they didn't come from the people who raised me. And in fact, what I've discovered about my biological father and his ancestry come from a pretty hardy, hardy stock, like part of the world that like that actually makes sense to me now, along with everything else about nurture and the way that I was raised. It all went into making me me, but I was missing some really fundamental, you know, aspects. It's sort of like making a soup and like not having the stock. You know, yeah. I've never used that <laughs> metaphor before. No but broth. <laughs> Do you think in some ways that it's that void in knowledge that led you to write memoirs in the first place? That, yeah, you were the perfect person or the best and worst person to happen for this to happen to, but also it couldn't have happened any other way? That's a great observation and question. And yeah, I've absolutely thought that because I've been puzzled for years. Like why? I mean, I'm a novelist. That my first three books were novels. And then I wrote a memoir that I really wrote, my, my memoir, Slow Motion, very much as kind of a curative because I thought my fiction's being kind of haunted by my personal experience. Let me write it as a memoir, you know, the story of my father's death, my parents' accident, and again, a kind of piecing of him together and of my family together in some way. And then I went back to fiction and I wrote two more novels, and then I was waiting for the next novel to appear, and then a memoir appeared. And then I was like, all right, my memoir devotion. And and so I was being absolutely pulled in this direction of um, the image that has come to me over time is of a big lawn that I've been digging up in certain spots, you know, like looking for the buried treasure or like looking for the bone. And so there's like these little piles of dirt that represent each of my books. But the bone was actually buried somewhere else. I felt like going back to any therapist I had ever seen and just calling each one of them up, you know, from the time I was like a <laughs> freshman in college and just say, 
we were wrong. <laughs> like yeah, the, the bone was in a different house. The bone like, was just in a totally <laughs> other place. Yeah. I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot, especially in, in reading the reviews of it and how many people have remarked on how fortuitous it seems that you were the person for this. Um, but I do think it has a lot to do with the family secrets, as you said. Do you think that the experience of you know losing your father young and kind of always feeling this void of knowledge of yourself and your family has led you in some of these creative directions and kind of shaped who you are as a person? I, I feel like I've been almost entirely shaped by that not knowing and by the complexity of my childhood and trying to understand it. I mean, we tell stories to ourselves about ourselves. You know, our sense of identity comes from being born into stories and stories being told to us. And a story that I really always had about my parents and my childhood and being a writer is that I was an only child, or I was raised an only child, of two older parents, and my father was religious, and there was a lot of conflict between my parents, so I ended up constantly kind of exiting into a dream world and spent a lot of time by myself. And also because my father was religious, we were Sabbath observant. So there was one day every week where there was there were no distractions. Uh, you know, there was no writing, there was no driving, there was no electricity, there was no cooking. Um, it was a day of contemplation, really. And I think that's also part of what turned me into a writer and fired my imagination in a certain way. Um, so all of that was true. It just wasn't the whole truth. And this discovery was like pouring like rocket fuel on everything that I had worked so hard and so relentlessly to understand. But again, the bone was elsewhere. What do you think your parents' reaction to this book would be? I think my father would be proud of me. I don't know how my mother would feel. But, you know, I've internalized her in a very different way. She's a more toxic presence in my inner life, and my father has never been that. But I am, a, I am aware that, that I am exposing a secret that they had not planned to expose. It's interesting because I don't feel any guilt about that because I am the secret. So, you know, I, I get to tell this story. Um, but it's complex. I say something like, you know, no family wishes to have a writer, you know, born into its midst. It's like, oh boy, you know. Um, I did feel with inheritance that I very much wanted to protect the privacy of my biological father. Uh, that was really important to me, and I changed his name and I changed certain identifying details so that so that people would not uh, recognize him, and even people that knew him would not think, "Oh, that sounds an awful lot like Ben." So that was that was very important to me. But oh, but that's you know that's someone who's alive and walking the planet. One of the most beautiful things about this memoir, in my reading of it, was sort of this juxtaposition of you internalizing these secrets and the fact that your parents have kept this huge secret from you, and then reading about you being really transparent with your son about his family history. What was that decision like for you? I didn't know how he would respond, but I was very, very conscious of it being important to tell him. This is his story, too. And, you know, this is a biological grandfather who's other than, you know, what he had known. One of the things I think was really um, interesting about it to me is that, first of all, I think it's generational. His generation, none of this is a big deal. They've just, you know, everybody's grown up with all different kinds of identities, and it's a lot more fluid. And another thing is he never knew my dad. So I wasn't actually taking anything away from him that he felt connected to. 
I had tried very hard as his mother to have him feel connected to my father and to my father's family because I felt so connected to them and so enamored of their legacy and so enamored of who they were and the good that they had done in the world that I wanted my son to feel that too and to feel like he came from that lineage. But another thing that I've learned is that our ancestors are basically stories that we tell ourselves. If we haven't known them, then they're just, you know, they're pictures on the wall. So he wasn't being robbed of anything by losing this ancestor grandfather who he hadn't known. If he had known my dad, I think it would have been a very different kind of experience. He was very close with my husband's father. And when my father-in-law died, well, a little more than a year ago, my son was utterly, utterly devastated. So it's about the relationship. And then I think other than that, it became increasingly, he became curious, I think, about you know, what does this mean? What does it mean to have new relatives? Does it mean anything to have new relatives, biological relatives? Does the biology matter? You know, how much is nature? How much is culture? And he's become really interested in those ideas, but he certainly didn't find it disturbing, I think. And it was very important to me that it not be um, a secret from him. Yeah, and there is a whole other side of this story from the scientific perspective that is really interesting. You don't touch upon too many times, but there are a couple instances where you talk about how, you know, your biological father makes the same gestures as you or, you know, he looks like your son. And there's just, you know, so many things that were just sort of a little bit Twilight zone Totally yeah. Twilight zone <laughs> I mean, when I saw a picture of my biological father as a young man, he looks identical to my son. Um, but also, like, regarding the more sort of scientific or medical part of this, I had given incorrect medical history for my entire life. And I'd given incorrect medical history for my son as well, which is something that people don't really think about regarding this. Um, And that's just dangerous. I mean, I was telling doctors that I had a family history on my father's side of heart disease, of addiction, of depression. None of those were my particular burdens to carry. So, I mean, that that too. But, But in terms of the sort of the personhood part of this, I mean, when we were talking before about my becoming a writer, I in the family that I was raised in was a complete anomaly as an artist. There, were no, there weren't creative people. And my biological father is a really wonderful writer. It's just so strange. That but is he is, I mean, strange. even though he's, he's a physician, but he's, he's a really wonderful writer. And he's a huge reader. And that is something that we started sharing right away. It's like, you know, as I write in the book, you know, sending him a poem that I think he might like, or we bizarrely had the same favorite novel. I mean, what were the chances of that? Um, so there is something that's ineffable. You know, it's, it's dangerous to read too much into uh, nature, but it's also, I think, a mistake to think it doesn't matter at all. Um, I've come to think of myself as coming from three people. I, I come from my mother, biologically. I come from my father who raised me and loved me and is, I think, a big part of the reason why I am me and I'm okay. And I come from my biological father from whom I inherited uh, a range of traits. And my mother and my biological father, they never would have encountered each other and, and like, made a baby. Like, they, they, they would never have known each other. Their ages, their cultures, their backgrounds, their... Uh, you know, where they were in each other's lives. This was this would not have been sort of like a chance encounter that would have produced a child. So the science of it, too, is what, you know, allows me to be sitting here talking to you. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This was an amazing conversation and an amazing book. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. much Christina for joining us but before we let you go I really have to ask because I always want to know what are you currently reading? Yeah I'm always happy to answer that question. So right now I'm reading a book that doesn't come out until May but you should definitely add it to your pre-order list. It's called Furious Hours. It's by Casey Sepp and it is about the true crime case that riveted Harper Lee the author of To Kill a Mockingbird So much so that she traveled back down to Alabama, she was living in New York at the time, to report on the case. And she talked to, you know, all the people in the town, and she compiled just tubs of research about this true crime case. And she actually began writing a novel inspired by it. Um, And it is this fascinating look into one of the most bizarre crimes I have ever read about in a book but also just a really fascinating look at the life of Harper Lee. It's a wonderful book. I think it's going to be getting a lot of attention in a couple of months, and it is definitely one that you need to look out for. I absolutely cannot wait to pre-order on Amazon, as I usually do when I'm talking to Christina. So thank you so much again, Christina, for joining us, and thanks for that amazing conversation with Danny Shapiro. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons and Michaela Heck with help and love from Roseanne Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely leave us reviews on iTunes because we'd love to hear your feedback. You can also reach us at huddle at bustle.com. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next week.